This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 12, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. This week, the Supreme Court will consider if they'll take any of more than a dozen cases on qualified immunity. That's the court-invented doctrine that allows police and other government agents to avoid accountability after they violated Americans' rights. Just last week, the news service Reuters examined cases involving qualified immunity claims. Cato's Clark Neely and Jay Schweikert comment. What's the probability that you assign to the likelihood that the court ultimately does in in these cases uh, take take one of them and and try to decide this question? It's about fifty percent. Uh, Jay and I both agree that it, it's probably about fifty percent. Um, it's of course the odds of a cert grant in any one case are always very long, but uh, there's a lot of unusual things that I'll let Jay elaborate on that have been going on with the court's qualified immunity docket this term, and there is good reason to believe that the odds of a grant um, in one of the 13 cases that are going to conference on May 15th are higher than usual. Yeah, and I think the reason I feel more confident about a cert grant here than I normally would, even on an issue like this, is because of the way the Supreme Court has been scheduling some of these cert petitions. Um, several of these petitions have been fully briefed and ready for resolution since last October, but the Supreme Court has repeatedly rescheduled them. And is, so this, the timing here is no coincidence. They have made a purposeful decision to put all of their qualified immunity cases uh, on the docket for the same day for the same conference, which suggests they're looking very closely at this underlying question of whether qualified immunity itself should be reconsidered. And there's really no reason they would need to do that uh, unless, you know, they were looking very closely at granting cert in one or more of these cases. Uh, Reuters recently released a report sort of examining cases uh, where civil rights violations are alleged. Uh, Clark, why don't you tell tell me about that? Yeah, Reuters did a really deep dive looking at um, uh, both individual cases and but also sort of on a more macro level to see if they could identify any trends um, in qualified immunity practice. And the answer is yes, they identified a number of interesting trends. I would say that the the two top line trends that they seem to identify was that uh, courts appear to be getting increasingly favorable um, to police in excessive force cases. So police are more and more likely to win when they assert qualified immunity after they've used force against somebody and been sued for it. Um, And then second, and this gets a little bit inside baseball, but it's really important, um, courts seem to be uh, more inclined to do this kind of um, shortcut approach where instead of deciding first whether uh, a person had their constitutional rights violated, which is the first of the two-step qualified immunity process, and then second, was that violation uh, one of a clearly established right Um, They just, as the Supreme Court allows them to do, shortcut to the second question, say, well, putting aside whether or not this police officer violated your rights, we're going to hold that it wasn't a clearly established right um, and throw out the case. And of course, the result of that is that constitutional law becomes stagnant. These cases, these issues never get decided. And as uh, Judge Don Willett pointed out in in a wonderful opinion that he wrote for the Fifth Circuit, uh, the... um, the practical result is that police officers can keep committing the same constitutional violation over and over and over again, and we don't get a court ruling saying, um, look, going forward, that is, it is now clearly established in this circuit that you cannot do that thing. And that's a huge problem. Okay. So uh, basically, there's no uh, courts cleverly avoid establishing case law in this area? Yeah. And so they, they have the option as Clark was explaining, to like to not decide the merits question. And in, in my sort of anecdotal experience, and it's hard to sort of show this 
you know, explicitly empirically. But if you look at some of the cases where this comes up, it's actually often the most difficult, most important cases that present these really close questions um, where the court, you know, takes makes the decision to avoid the hard work of resolving the merits question and instead just you know, says, well, it wasn't clearly established, so we're going to move on. So even though that technically only happens in a you know, relatively small fraction of the cases overall, if you have facts that either don't make out a constitutional violation in the first place or you know, make out an obvious constitutional violation, that's not really necessary. It's in that gray area where it's a close call that you most need courts to address the hard questions and develop the law. And it's exactly those cases where they're avoiding it. So uh, what else did we learn from this this Reuters report, which I have to say, uh, good timing. Yeah, no, it's it's very good timing uh, right before the, the, the court considers this. And so just to give a little bit more detail on exactly what Reuters looked at, they were they were looking at a little over 500 federal uh, appellate decisions since 2005 um, involving uh, excessive force claims specifically. Now, obviously, qualified immunity doesn't just apply to excessive force or even just to police officers. It applies to all public officials. But they were they were focusing on the excessive force cases in particular. Uh, and and the the analysis sort of breaks down in discrete chunks in sort of like roughly two year periods uh, the trends in qualified immunity. Um, and and to to elaborate a little bit on what Clark was saying earlier, what you see is overall the win rates for police are going up. So starting from the 2005 to 2007 period, um, the police were only prevailing at the qualified immunity stage in about uh, 44% of the cases. Now, on the whole, in the last two years, since 2017, they're winning in 57% of cases. And, and to be clear, when I say win here, what I mean is that, that, when, when, that when the police win qualified immunity at the appellate stage, the case is over. Right. That's that's the end of the case. Whereas if the plaintiffs win, right, if the court if the court denies immunity, that doesn't mean the case is over. All that means is the case gets to go to trial. So, of course, you know, the police might still win at trial, um, depending on, you know, the way the jury finds the facts. They can still be disputed facts that have to be resolved at a jury trial. So when Reuters is reporting that uh, in only 43 percent of cases uh, is, is this decision favoring the plaintiff, what that means is over half the time that qualified immunity is raised, the appellate court is throwing out the case before it can even go to trial. So it's an extraordinarily powerful screening mechanism, and it is steadily getting more powerful over time. Um, and then the other sort of distinct trend that we see is an expansion of that class of cases where either A, the court says, yes, there was a violation, but it wasn't clearly established, or B, we're going to skip the question of whether it was a violation at all. So those are sort of really the two areas where qualified immunity is doing the work, and both of those categories are getting bigger over time. All right. So uh, as of this recording, the court is a few days away from uh, deciding whether or not to take up uh, some of these cases. How uh, favorable are these cases as they exist, do you think, to uh, the court easily coming to the conclusion that this doctrine is uh, a failure. Well, that's um, where we feel pretty confident. This is an extraordinary collection of cases. Uh, the we I won't try to go through all of them, but I'll, just a few of the issues in these cases involve, for example, there was a case out of California, which is the Ninth Circuit, where the allegation is that police 
uh, were executing a search warrant in a private residence. And one of the officers simply helped himself to $225,000 in gold coins and cash and stole it while executing this warrant, not for any law enforcement purpose, just to enrich himself. And the Ninth Circuit, in considering the police officer's qualified immunity claim, said, "We, we know of course, all of us know that stealing is immoral, but we haven't had a case in the Ninth Circuit where we specifically said that it is unconstitutional. And so we're going to grant qualified immunity. Another example is one where um, poli- a police officer responding to um, a call about an altercation at a public swimming pool in Nebraska, they, they arrive on the scene and they're reassured that it was not an altercation. It was just some horseplay among some family members. Um, and the, um, uh, the mom of the kids tells the police officer she needs to go check on her, her child, her daughter, because someone's hassling the daughter. And the officer says to the, to the woman, no, you need to stay and talk to me. Now, keep in mind, she's not a suspect. She was the putative victim. And she says, I will talk to you, but I need to go help my daughter. And she turns and begins walking away. And the police officer comes up behind her, gets her in a bear hug, lifts her up off the ground, turns her upside down and slams her head first into the ground, knocking her unconscious and breaking uh, her shoulder. And again, uh, this time, the, the, the full Eighth Circuit on bond, uh, eight to four, says, well, we just don't have a case on point that says you can't pick up an unarmed, unresisting, five-foot-tall woman in a bathing suit and, and uh, pile-drive her head first into the ground. So once again, qualified immunity. The cases on this, uh, the, of, of the 13 cases, there's at least half a dozen that present facts uh, as compelling as the ones that I just described. And uh, I think it would be a real embarrassment and a black eye for the Supreme Court to essentially say, uh, well, you know, it's just too bad that that happened to those people. And, you know, if it makes uh, it, it, you know, if it results in the judiciary relentlessly infantilizing the police by essentially saying, well, how could they have known not to do those things? Um, too bad. Uh, it is certainly possible that the court will do that, but the stain, I think, and the stench that will be left behind if the court uh, allows these rulings to stand um, is something that would be very difficult for me to stomach if I were a member of the court. And courts like uh, facts that allow them to make to render a clean judgment. Is that right? Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's what's one of the things that's nice about these cases is that they they are all extraordinarily compelling facts, but. Uh, in sort of a wide variety of contexts. So some of these, you know, a lot of these do involve police, but some involve excessive force claims. Uh, some involve, uh, like Clark was mentioning, the theft of private property as a Fourth Amendment violation. Uh, some of these involve prison conditions. So b- what we basically tried to do from from the, from a strategic uh, pers- perspective in highlighting uh, these really uh, viable cases is give the court sort of a range of options, right? Because it's hard to know exactly which cases they might find most compelling or which ones they, you know, might be the best vehicle for various alternatives or modifications to qualified immunity. So we've tried to just give them every option possible, um, uh, both in terms of the uh, fact patterns and also in terms of the sort of doctrinal features of the case, because we have some range in terms of whether uh, some of these cases involve the courts finding a constitutional violation, but then granting immunity, whereas some involve them skipping that step entirely. Um, so, you know, I really think that, that we, and by we, I mean, both Cato and, and the parties and the other amici, really everyone involved in this effort has done everything possible to give the court every conceivable way to address this issue. Um, which is, I think, part of the reason why we're, you know, encouraged by the fact that they seem to be looking at all of these together on the same day. 
Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.